0: Actually, we will be starting in chapter 8, verse 13. And what we're going to do, uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump right in, read the text, and, and then we'll kind of go from there. And so one thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's Word. So I'm going to ask that you would stand. We do that because we believe God's Word comes with His full authority and inspiration for the purpose of building and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And so uh, we will read from, verse, from chapter 8, verse 13. All the way through to the end of verse, uh, all the way to the end of chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen, fr- oh, nope, 13, sorry, I even got thrown off there. Let's just forget that. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses and my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths." By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come into your word today and we ask that your spirit would be upon us, giving us wisdom that we would have understanding. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear the truth of your word. there's There's a lot here now, this is a dark, disturbing text in many ways. So, God, may we see the message that you have laid here for us. May we see the truth of your word, the hope that is in your gospel. And, God, based upon your word, may we be strengthened in your faith today. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, all may be seated. Um, so i've rewritten this outline many times i've rewritten my intro many times uh, this has been one just been like how, how do you how do you go into this so we're going to go with what i've written now because because now it's time uh, so one thing i, I just want to remind us revelation was written for the purpose of strengthening the churches it 's to strengthen us as we wait for the return of Jesus. so when Jesus came two thousand years ago, he was born, he lived, he died, and he rose again he 's now ascended at the right hand of God, where we saw in Revelation One, he holds the keys of death in hades, and now this message, this book, is given to us as the church. Um, exists in between the two comings of Christ, waiting for Christ to return, that He'd bring about the consummation of the kingdom, and that we would be gathered to Him in the new heavens and new earth. So that's the purpose of the book, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Number two, we must understand when we're we're in this book, it communicates heavily through symbolism. That's what apocalyptic does. It's, It's the pulling back of the veil... That we would see beyond just physical realities and understand there's a spiritual reality also. And so that's largely what Revelation does. For instance, when we see the chaos and the destruction and the things happening in this world, Revelation 4 shows us, though, that God is on His throne. There is a sea of glass before Him meaning that everything is calm and peaceful before God. Everything is taking place the way God has ordained it to be. So while things look chaotic, the spiritual reality is God is in control and he's moving all things towards that consummation time where Christ will return. Number three, we must remember Revelation pulls from Old Testament imagery all the time. In fact, Revelation pulls from more of the Old Testament, quotes more of the Old Testament, alludes more to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, I was on the phone yesterday with one of my uh, friends who's a pastor down in Portland. Many of you know him, Bobby Gaither. He was with us for our men's retreat this last year. And, and he was asking me, well, how's it going in Revelation? And I just said for myself, man, I've been loving it. It's putting me in all different parts of the Bible And as we'll see today, um, our text pulls largely from the Exodus, largely from the vision that we're given in Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the locust plague there. But if we're going to understand Revelation, just as if we're really going to understand any book, we must begin to understand the Bible, how it flows. That it's a story from beginning to end, and it's all about God's glory, and how he'll be glorified through a people that he has created for himself through Jesus Christ. So as we begin to look at today, what I want, to remind, I want to do at the beginning is remind us of one of the, the, the primary redemption stories we have in the Old Testament, because it gives us understanding for how to understand our text today. Uh, we start off with the book of Genesis. Right after Genesis, we have Exodus. Um, in Exodus, we begin that book with seeing that God's people Israel is enslaved by Egypt. Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth at this moment. Now, if you remember in Genesis, we start with a man named Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has 12 sons. These people then form the people of God, Israel, who then eventually move into Egypt. Eventually, Egypt turns upon them, begins to oppress them. Begins to enslave them. God's people are suffering. God's people are being persecuted. God's people are being killed. They then cry out to God. God, where are you? God, help us. And in response to their prayers, and God remembering his covenant with Abraham, he responds. He responds by sending a man named Moses, who will be a a Savior-type figure, who will come and bring about ten Plagues upon Egypt. These plagues are God's judgment upon Egypt. They culminate in the release of God's people from Egypt and the full destruction of Egypt as they're destroyed in the Red Sea. Do you remember that? At first, they're released. And Pharaoh goes, what have we done? We must go after them. So they pursue them, all the army, all the chariots, and they go into the Red Sea. And God brings down the sea, crashing upon them, thus decimating and pulverizing those who have rejected God. So that story informs now how we think about this story. Because where we're at, or where we're at in Revelation, because in Revelation, what we have is we have God's people largely being In fact, John writes in the beginning of the book that life in the times that we live in is characterized by tribulation. When we look at the seven letters to the churches, we see they're in tribulation. They're being persecuted. Some have been killed. We then see in chapter 6 where the seven seals are. The seven seals, this is a quick reminder, Are we see that there's suffering, there's war, there's pain here on earth. And as a result of that, the church is suffering. Many saints will be martyred and will be killed. And yet God says, even through your death, that will advance the gospel. There's many other things that are given there. But what we see in response to this, the saints cry out to God and they say, How long, O Lord? So they cry out to God for deliverance. They cry out, God, when will you come and bring about the fullness of your plan? One of the ways God responds to that is the trumpets. The trumpets are God's judgment then upon the earth now as a foretaste of the great great judgment, which is the seventh trumpet or what we see in the bowls. Um, And so the trumpets function largely like the plagues did in the Old Testament. They were a foretaste of the great judgment. If you do not repent, if you do not turn, there is a judgment that is coming, which Egypt experienced in the Red Sea, and which is characterized here in Revelation, is through the destruction of this world. In fact, when we look at the trumpets, they kind of connect with the plagues. Trumpet number one, which we looked at last week, there is fire and hell being released. And we saw that connects with plague number seven in Egypt, where hell Kills hell and fire come down from heaven, killing vegetation and people. Trumpets number two and three, they turn the water into blood. All the fresh waters are turned bitter. Animal or fish are all dying. And what we see is that parallels um, the first plague upon Egypt, where Moses turns the water blood, the Nile River blood, all the fish die. Trumpet number four, the sky is darkened, which is similar to plague number nine in Egypt, where the sky around Egypt is darkened. Trumpet number five is the locust army, which that's where we're at today. Um, And that shows uh, from the plague number eight, which is the locust plague in Egypt. And trumpet number six, where we have horses coming and killing a third of mankind, that points to the tenth plague, where the firstborn of all Egypt was killed. And so these 10 plagues, they lead to the destruction of Egypt. These six trumpet blasts ultimately lead to the seventh trumpet blast where all who have not been trusted in Christ um, will be punished for all of eternity, which we'll look at that text more in two weeks. So as we look at this text, we must remember this is God's judgment. It's a foretaste of a much greater judgment to come. These trumpets are meant, to show, are meant to show us the power of God, His unlimited power, and the futility of trusting anything in this world. They function as a means of hardening some, and we'll look at that. Some people, when they look at the war, the pain, the suffering in this world, they say, there can't be a God. No way would I believe in God. So they're hardened even further against God. And yet for others, we know that it will lead to their salvation. And we even see that back in Exodus, where when Israel leads, it says that they're a mixed multitude, meaning there are some Egyptians who have seen these plagues, and they've gone, this God is real. And they've now repented, and they've trusted in the God of Israel, and they leave with Israel as they depart from Egypt. So that's kind of that's how we come in to our text today. And so what we're going to do now is, I just want us to look at our text, and we're going to look at, there's a picture of, and we're going to call this Satan's kingdom, and we're given a picture of it, we're going to I'll look at the purpose of it, and we're going to look at the power of it. So we begin, and we see there's two hideous, gruesome armies that are depicted for us. The fifth trumpet reveals a locust army. The sixth trumpet, if we do the math, it's a 200 million horse army. It's a massive army. And so we'll look at these just kind of one at a time, and then we'll, we'll kind of step back. We start with the locust. In verse 1, we see a star falls from heaven to earth and is given a key to open a bottomless pit where, where smoke of a great furnace rises and darkens the sun and the air. This seems to show, okay, this is like the layer of darkness, the, the layer of evil, where it, where it resides. And, and from this layer comes evil, comes darkness, comes smoke, which is all Old Testament imagery for judgment of God. And out of this smoke, as it fills the sky, we see this locust horde just pouring forth now. Before we look at that, so who is this fallen star? Who is this star that comes down and seems to unlock this, this plague of locusts. Well, if, if you've read commentaries, there's a lot of ideas when you're working through Revelation. There's lots of ideas. There's a lot of really bad ideas, and there's some commentaries that offer really good possibilities. Um, I, I think what we have here is, is we have Satan thrown down from heaven, to Earth, And there's a couple of reasons I say that. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, we see Satan is thrown from heaven to earth. In Luke chapter 10 verse 18, when the 72 disciples go out and they preach the gospel that the kingdom is coming, they return. And in Luke chapter 10 verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so we, all, we have several different pictures throughout the Bible of this imagery of Satan like a star being fallen or thrown from heaven, which I think is what we have here. Um, and what we see, he comes down and he unlocks this pit where this locust horde is going to come from, this demonic army which comes and is hideous in appearance. In fact, the appearance of the locusts, they have tails like scorpions, they have human faces, hair like that of a woman, teeth of a lion. They have breastplates of iron, probably showing their strength and their power. And, and their wings are so many that they, when they're flying and they're, they're in the sky and there's this black movement of just locusts everywhere, it sounds like chariots going into battle. So can you picture it? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Like, Revelation, it, it speaks in symbolism. So we would we'd actually kind of see this hideous, gruesome locust plague just coming upon this earth and then we have this other army in verse 13 for the sixth trumpet and we see that there's four angels that are bounded the great euphrates now real quick um, the great euphrates um, all the enemies of israel primarily lived beyond the euphrates the enemy of rome was pa- the parthians they lived beyond the euphrates so the primary enemies we're always beyond the Euphrates. So by mentioning it here, it's, this is where the enemy comes from. This is where the judgment comes from. This is where destruction comes from. It always comes from beyond the Euphrates. And so in verse 16, they release a 200 million horse army. So just putting that into picture, it is one mile wide, 85 miles long would be this army. So it's, it's massive. In verse 17, John said, John tells us what they look like. It looks like I'm guessing the riders have these breastplates on them. The horses, they have heads like lions. Can you imagine that? Heads like lions, fire, smoke, sulfur coming from their mouths. Their tails are like serpents. I mean, this is like crazy Stephen King stuff, right? I mean, isn't it? You're just like, mm, this is like crazy. Now, there are some people who will say that these are going to be physical armies that will be literally seen here on earth meaning that there will be these crazy locust beasts and these horses with heads like lions and they will roam through the earth i don't think that makes sense at all i don't think that makes sense within the book of Revelation, because primarily we're in apocalyptic literature. We must understand things. Things are symbolic. So things are often showing us more of the spiritual rather than the physical. They're helping us understand what is around us. So I think rather than thinking that these are actually physical beings that we will see and actually sting us like we will see them sting us, is that they're more the demonic armies of Satan and they're at work here on this Earth. That's how I see that this text looks. Um, and so, what we have. So, what is happening here? Uh, if we jump back to verse thirteen, what we see is that there's a there's an eagle and an eagle is crying out in a loud voice. Woe, woe, woe! And then it says to who this woes are to? To those who dwell on the earth. So, so a couple of things here. Eagles are many times used throughout the Bible as pictures of judgment. Judgment upon either God's people, judgment as upon other nations. The, the, those who dwell on earth, earth dwellers in Revelation, always refers to unbelievers. It always refers, every single time, unbelievers in Revelation. And these woes coincide with the last three trumpets, five six seven and so just as the plagues of Egypt were primarily directed at Egypt not on Israel God's people what we see is these trumpet plagues especially these last three are directed upon not God's people but upon those who are of the earth those who what we see do not have the seal of God upon them so these are Satan's hideous armies that he's bringing that he's bringing to torment to attack on this world, but yet God is using them to bring judgment here on this earth, on this world. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer and you're visiting here and you're saying, you know, I, I kind of want to understand more about Christianity, uh, this this text will be very uncomfortable for you, and, and to say more. I mean, it's uncomfortable for us all, but the Bible is not written so that we who do not know Jesus would be comfortable. It's not written for that. It's not written, so we would read this message, and we'd go, well, that, that's a nice story, and just set it down and move on. This, this, Picture here is to awaken us and say there's a reality out there, and just because you might not see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And if you continue on the path that you are on, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you continue to re- reject Jesus Christ as King and Lord, there is a judgment that is coming. And these hordes, these armies that are here, this working, this activity, this demonic activity, is a foretaste. Of that, And so if you're an unbeliever here today, it's not meant to make you comfortable. I don't necessarily want just to make you uncomfortable, but that is certainly what God's Word is meant to do here. It's meant to awaken us. And so it's meant to show us that there is something beyond just what we see. And so let's look. What do these armies attack? What do they do? And so for that, we'll move to the purpose of the kingdom. And we see there's really two purposes. The locust army comes to bring torment, and the, the horse cavalry comes to kill a third of mankind. That's what we see. And, and we need to know their purpose is really the same as Satan's purpose. If we were to go like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, In the very end of of Peter's letter to the churches, he writes this. He says, Satan is like a roaring lion roaming the earth looking for someone to devour. That's his role. That's what he does. He wants to consume. He wants to kill. He wants to attack. In fact, in Genesis 3, we see that Satan attempts Adam and Eve so that they would be corrupted. So that they would experience pain and suffering and torment on death. He deceives them, yet it's Adam and Eve's choice to to reject God. And Satan doesn't do this because he loves them. We need to know that. Satan's not doing this because he goes, man, I want Adam and Eve on my team. I like them more than God. I could use them. I'm going to offer them this blessing. I have so much to give them. They're made in the image of God, like you and I are made in the image of God. So Satan hates God. Every activity, everything he does is do is to reject, to rebel, and to deny all that is meant to give glory to God. And therefore, his focus is primarily on those who bear his image, on God's image, which is humanity, which is why these armies will come and attack. In fact, when we go to the Gospels, what we see when we see those who have demonic activity upon them, they're never at rest. These are never happy people. They're never walking around. These are never the people that are envied by the others. In fact, if you're in Mark chapter 5, we see that there's a man, and he's called this demoniac, who has a legion of demons in him. A thousand demons. So so if anyone's going to be happy in Satan's kingdom, if his goal is to make people happy, it's going to be this guy. He's got a thousand demons in him. And yet what we're told is he, he, he probably lives in a cemetery, he's cutting himself, he's crying out at all times. He is in utter torment, which is what we read here. That's the whole purpose of this enemy, is that they're going to bring torment. They don't care uh, who you are, they hate everyone made in the image of God. And until Christ comes and he heals the person, and because of Jesus, this man is put at rest. So we must understand that that is what Satan is desiring to do. Those who are not in God's kingdom, those who have not yet trusted in Christ, he doesn't care that they don't have God's seal on them. He still wants to torment them. He still wants to torture them. He still wants to hurt them. And so what does it mean that these armies torment and kill? This is where it gets hard there are almost limitless interpretations. So we're going to cover them. No, we're not. Like we could say so much here, because I I think there's so much that could be said. I really, really do. But I don't think that's necessarily the purpose of why it's written. What I think we have here is that he gives us these two pictures of, of Satan's hideous army of his kingdom in order to show the fierce judgment that god has upon unbelievers we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in all the details when we get caught up in the details of apocalyptic literature we're going to lose the meaning it's kind of like when we go back to the parables of jesus if you pick apart the the details of the parables, you lose the story. The point of the parable is to step back, see the parable as a whole, and understand the truth that comes from it. When you pick it apart, you'll miss it. If you do that with apocalyptic literature, you'll miss it. And so we're going, okay, what's the serpent's tail for? What's the the scorpion? What does it mean that they have a breastplate? And all of this, I think we're to step back Okay, this is a hideous-looking demonic army full of power, full of torture. They're able to, to, to hurt. They're able to kill. So I think we have to be careful about getting caught up in the details that we miss the big picture. But to make a few comments, is this torment of the locusts supposed to reveal the misery that unbelievers experience here on earth? Things like anxiety, depression, fear, psychological, emotional issues, things like the anger that builds up within us, that drives us crazy, that causes us to end relationships, causes us to hurt other people, causes us to lie, in our, lie awake at night because we're so angry at other people. It turns into bitterness is this is this the endless lust for money and stuff and the things that the world has that we always want more? And we want more. We want more. We want more. We want more. And so that we're never satisfied, but yet we're always yearning. We're always lusting. Maybe that's what that communicates. That's where I'm at with that. That's what I think this this torment is. Is this restless? Is this restlessness that unbelievers have in their souls? that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy. And and I say that, and we'll talk more about that. Never here will I or anyone else say that the things of this earth are bad. I don't want you to think that. Like, we're not against... I I preach from an iPad. I'm not against technology. I'm not against a new iPad, because this is of the newer kind. I'm not against phones. We're not against vehicles. We're not against buildings. We're not against stuff. We're against stuff that then becomes ruling stuff the things that we pursue the things that we lust after the things that must give us meaning and satisfaction we're against that kind of stuff so we're all about if, if you need clothing great we want to help you get clothing we hope you have money to get clothing if you need whatever it is we want to help you have things like that's not wrong but if we ever look for these things to give us satisfaction that's where we're then trading them in for what God alone can do okay so just little side comment there. We're going to talk that things are evil, okay? Or things can be evil. Things can d- distract us and divert our attention away from God. We're not against stuff. Maybe some stuff. Then we'll just leave that. There's probably some stuff. I don't know what it is at this moment, but there's some stuff we probably would be against. But a lot of things that we, we like. So please never hear, oh, man, this church is against, like, everything physical. We've got to, like, you know, go back to horse and cart. and No. Because that would be stuff, Right? Um, Okay, moving on. So that that might be what the torment is. That's what I think it is. I think that's what it is, this restlessness of the soul of believers. There's nothing that can take that away, not even death. So what is this death that the horses bring? Could it be that it's the death? Could it be that it reveals the spiritual realm working behind murders? behind wars, behind rapes, behind brutalities, Behind injustice is like we look at these things and we just go, oh man, that guy killed this person because of conditions, because of environment, because of this. But what if behind all these murders, what if behind these things is there is a, a spiritual realm that is working, that is inciting our sin to work and to kill and to murder and to hate? So when we look and we just say, okay, somebody killed or this nation is at war against another, it's not just physical. It's not that we just don't like people, but there's a spiritual aspect of either superiority, some type of pride, some type of anger that is working that I must put my power and dominate over this other people and I will hurt them and kill them and destroy them and whatever it takes. So they will then recognize my honor, my position, whatever it is that I want. Is that what that could be? where it's giving us the -the behind-the-scenes look of why are people at unrest? Why is there murder? Why are people so much just in torment on this earth? It's not just because they don't have things. It's not just because we kill one another, but there's there's an evil that lies behind everything. And Satan is using it to incite our evil desires within us. That's where i'm at on that you can agree you can disagree that's where i think that these are coming at and that's what i think will make most sense of the book as we continue to go through Um, so what's the answer what's the answer what can bring comfort to the tormented what can give peace and rest if the world is at torment and we know People are angry. People are at unrest. People are looking for answers. What is the answer that they need? We're given the answer right here in our text. Look at verse 4. The locusts cannot hurt those who do not, or they can only hurt those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So everyone with the seal of God, which we saw back in chapter 7, God seals all of his people. He protects them. He provides for them. He loves them. He guards for them. It doesn't mean they don't die. We, we saw that. We, we know they die, and even our death advances the gospel, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can remove us from his family. When we are saved, and we are justified, and we are adopted, and we are made citizens of his kingdom, there is nothing Satan can do, not even with all the hordes of his armies, that can bring that into separation between us and God. And we see that because his seal is upon us at death, one day when we stand before the throne of God, we stand before the throne. We're we're told that everyone who doesn't have the seal will not stand but be crushed by his judgment. In In Revelation 14, we see that this seal is God's name written on our foreheads. Obviously, that's symbolic. We don't actually have the name God, Yahweh, Jesus. Pick a name. He has many on our foreheads. Most likely what that is, is that's the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within us. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, we're told this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So he's talking, when you believed in Jesus at your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So how is it that God writes His name on us? He places His Spirit in us. That's how we're sealed. And how do we attain the seal? It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point, is that God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world that He would save a people who were at torment, a people who were at unrest, a people who were under His judgment and wrath because of sin, and He would bring them into His presence. And He does that through the grace of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So do you see the words, he might bring us to God? That's the point of the gospel. Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, rises again, that by grace we would be saved. And we who are separated from God, we who are removed from the garden, we who are under the wrath of God, would now have peace with God would now be in his family, would now dwell in his presence. He would now dwell within us. All culminating in the fact that one day we would live in the new heavens and new earth with him. Earlier we said, if you're an unbeliever, this text is not meant to make you comfortable. But hear this. God God provides hope. You don't have to stay In that uncomfortableness, he provides hope. And that hope is in the person, Jesus Christ. Now Satan, he continues to tempt. He continues to lure us. He continues to try to divert our eyes away from God onto the things of this world. But God has given his son Jesus that we would see him. And when we see Christ, we would see the glory of the God. And that would be full of joy, we'd be full of happiness, we'd be full of the peace that God offers us. And so here this: if you're a believer here, you have what the world needs. You have what your neighbor needs, what your coworker needs, um, what people on the other end of the world needs. They don't need necessarily your job skills, although those are great. They don't need your house cleaning, woodworking tips, or any other tips you could give them, although those are certainly fun. They need you to share the gospel. That's what they want. Well, that's what they need. They might not want it. In fact, what we understand in Revelation, there are some, because because of sin, they have been hardened and they do not want it. But sometimes this judgment also works to prepare people to hear the gospel. But we go and we share the gospel just trusting that God will save. And so let us do that. Let that be what this text of moves us out Knowing that people are at unrest, people are at torment, judgment is what awaits them. They need Jesus. And so now, if you're, you're kind of sitting here and you're going, okay, this is just kind of a weighty text and it's kind of still kind of creepy, um, there's a lot of hope in this text. And I, I want to show you that hope. I want to see there's, there's a lot of hope. In fact, it shines pretty brightly when you see it. So let's look at the power of Satan's kingdom and this is kind of a fun part uh, because when we look at the power of Satan's kingdom we go wow that's really limited power that he has. So when we're thinking of these armies that are coming out these are not infinitely powerful armies. Let me give you three ways that we show the finiteness of God's kingdom here. Number one Satan does the bidding of God. These trumpets are God's judgment on earth but yet what is Satan doing? He's the one who's given a key so he would willingly unlock these armies, bring them forth upon the earth, because his goal is just to torment and to kill and destroy, because that's what he does. But God uses that as his means of bringing judgment. So while Satan has one purpose, God has a much bigger purpose which overarches over Satan's. If you have kind of trouble seeing that at times, think back about the cross. What does Satan do? Satan has nothing more than he desires to kill Christ, to destroy him. And thinking that Jesus is killed, he's won, right? But what happened at the cross? It's there that Satan, that Jesus now has the keys of death and Hades. It's now that he's written victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And now he can bring people into his kingdom for all of eternity because the price has been paid so that we who believe in him could be saved and forgiven. So while Satan might have one purpose, God's purpose can oversee that and accomplish something much, much greater. And so here we see Satan, who thinks he's all-powerful, is actually doing the very bidding of God. Number two, these armies can't attack anything or anyone apart from what God allows them to. The locusts cannot attack vegetation, which also kind of tells us it's most likely some, it's a spiritual army rather than literal, because locusts love vegetation. The locusts have no power over believers, Because believers are sealed. This 200 million horse army can only kill a third of humanity. Well, this is an amazing army. They should be able to wipe out everyone. Nope. They can only kill a third. It's restrained. They also, number three, they have no intrinsic power. The fallen angel is given a key, verse one. The locusts were given power, verse three. The locusts were allowed to torment, but not kill. Like, you can go this far, but not any farther, which should remind you of the story of Job. Remember that? Satan can only do so much to Job, not what he wants, but only however far God allows him to go. The locust can only work for five months. We see that in verse 10. Now why there's deep theological meaning behind that. Next, the four bound angels can only release the horses. Did you wonder what that was? I have no idea what the five months mean. It's the lifespan of a locust. Maybe. I don't know why they can only do it five months. I think it only shows that it's, it's another restraining. Like, they only live so long. They only can act for so long. They're not all powerful. And the four bound angels can only release the horses when the voice of God permits them in verse 14. Don't miss that. Like, they're not just going. These angels bound at the Euphrates have been created for this time. It's pretty precise there, as it mentions the year, the month, and the season. But yet they can only do it once God then speaks. Now just think about that. How does that contrast with what we see of God in Revelation? Just how does that contrast? Chapter 1, Jesus is pictured as the conquering king, holding keys of death in Hades. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is the one with the power and authority to offer eternal life to his churches. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the Father and the Son being praised and worshipped in the throne room of God. Creature after creature, angel after angel, falling down and glorifying and worshipping him. In chapter 6, we see it's God's scroll that contains the events of history that is being undone. In chapters 12, 19, and 20, we see Satan and all of his armies will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. In the sixth and seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, we see God's full judgment poured out against all of unbelieving mankind and this creation that he would bring about a new heavens and new earth. Chapters 21 and 22, we see God has a people with himself in a new heavens and new earth. They dwell with him, Their name is written on their head. God's name is written on their head. And we are told that God's very being is all that is needed to illuminate the entire creation. There's no need for a sun. God's glory gives off all the light and heat needed for creation. Isn't that awesome looking? I just think through how it picked how it depicts the glory and the power of God. We're told God's kingdom will never have the gates closed. Why? Because there's no evil anymore. It's all been vanquished. There is no enemy to come through those gates anymore. So what's the message as we come through here? We see these horrible armies, but they're restrained. They're limited. They're finite. They're not all powerful. Well, if you're a believer, then we say we have no need to fear. What is it that we fear? Because of our faith in Jesus... We've been sealed and protected from these demonic armies. We're under God's divine protection. Whatever ails us, whatever anxiousness we experience, we can combat with the truth of God's word, knowing that he is with us, knowing we're his child, knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we are citizens of his kingdom. And so let us come back to the truth of his word every time and see the hope that we have in Christ because what we see is that our God is all-powerful. And there is nothing else that is all-powerful but God. So just two things to think about as, as we kind of close today. Number one, how do, how do we think about this God's judgment? Is it just, how do we think about these armies? One, let me, let me just say, when we go back to the plagues of Egypt, the ten plagues were a foretaste of the great destruction. The six trumpets are a foretaste. Now, God could have just reigned hell like Sodom and Gomorrah on Egypt, right? He could have done it at once, but he restrained. And by the restraining, he showed his power, he showed his might, but he also showed mercy. He gives time for the gospel to go forth. That's what we have here. These six trumpets is restraining judgment. It is mercy right now that we, that the church, would go forth proclaiming the gospel. So if you're ever wondering, and what is God's will for me to do? What am I supposed to do? It's to share the gospel, to engage and evangelize unbelievers. And some people will say, but, but is this even just? Like, these are innocent people being judged by these demonic hordes. Let's make sure, for one, we always talk in biblical terms. We can have an unbeliever come and say, is this just? And then we should bring them, yes, it is, according to God's word. Because according to God's word, there is no one innocent. We've all fallen. We're all sinful. We all, we're all born under the wrath of God. And so because of that, we all deserve his judgment. But apart from that, let's make sure. It clearly shows us in our text that these people are not innocent. Look at verses 20 and 21 the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts so twice we're told verse 20 verse 21 did not repent so they're not sitting here going God, we really want you. Please, please don't put these judgments on us. They're not crying out for God. They're crying out against God. And what we see is that they're clinging to their idols all the more. And these are the very idols that at their day they would have worshipped, which we can just substitute for our day into different things. Again, things aren't necessarily evil and wrong, but when we use them for the purpose of, of finding our joy and satisfaction in. That's what idolatry is. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, and that's been the plague of all of mankind throughout the ages. Is, is the title of my sermon was the, the Beauty That Evil, the Mask, the Beautiful Mask That Evil Wears. I had a way different intro, which that worked really well with. Um, but just to tie that in, what sin does is it presents us these things, and it looks beautiful. It looks beautiful. And you go, man, I I want that. I should have that. I need that. But what it is, evil is just wearing a beautiful mask. Because in the end, it cannot deliver. And it will always end in judgment. And that's what we see here. And verse 21 shows the lifestyle of those who commit idolatry. And it gives us this list of um, murder, sorcery, sexual morality, theft. This isn't a comprehensive list. But it is a list that simply shows us that we murder because we hate. We murder because we want people to recognize who we are. They need to know who I am, how much they hurt us, how much power I have. We do magic because we want to be in control. We commit sexual morality because we want sex, because we want pleasure. We steal because we want what we do not have and we believe we should have it. All these things are rooted in idolatry. It's simply just a a taste of of, of what it looks like to be an idolatrous person, not a comprehensive list. So just remember there is no one who's innocent and the only hope that we have is through the grace of jesus but but one last thing so how is the church supposed to respond to this picture of judgment and and this is where we need to come to because who is revelation written to this is our interaction time we didn't do a lot of interaction time we'll have to do that more next week so who's it written to how many of them Seven. Just remember, seven, just, if we ask a number, just say seven, because it's used a lot. It's not always the right answer, but you might be right. Um, just use seven. Seven is the word for completion, or the number for completion, number for perfection. Um, there's seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's structures of seven. Seven, anyways, there's lots of sevens. We can keep going. Um, uh, so it's meant for the church. So this message is not meant necessarily just for unbelievers. It's really meant for you and for me. Crazy, huh? Crazy demonic hordes going out to unbelievers. Why do we need to know that? What's the point? Well, if we go back to chapters 2 and 3, and we see there's seven churches, and these seven churches were just are described about what they look like. And Do you remember? All seven are tempted. All seven are being plagued with temptation. Two of them are standing firm at the moment. Two of them means... Five of them are compromising. We begin with Ephesus. Ephesus is beginning legalistic. Alright? They 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 do all the right things, but there's no love, there's no joy. And we go all the way to Laodicea, where Laodicea, we're told Jesus is outside the church knocking, seeing if anyone's gonna answer. So here we have. Ephesus starts with all believers but no longer really loving Um, and Laodicea we have really no believers in the church there's a progression of becoming more and more like the world that's what we see in those letters and and we need to realize that the message to Sardis was you have a reputation um, of being alive but you are dead that's Jesus' message to one of his churches So we need to realize, okay, there's temptations in this world today. Temptations are going to make us compromise on the word. Temptations are going to make us compromise on our witness. Temptations are going to make us compromise, and rather than living in holy lives, that we will live in unholy lives. And we're going to to come up with all many reasons of why we should live that way, of why we should compromise. And here's the message. There's the judgment that awaits. Do not become like the world. So, I think that this is given to us. So, we would just kind of take inventory. Okay. How am I doing? Am I living for God, or, or have I begun to be complacent? Have I begun to compromise? Am I starting to act more like the world individually and then even as a church? How are we doing? Are we, are we pressing forth with the gospel? Are we becoming complacent? Are we looking at how we engage and evangelize? Are we establishing each other in the word? Or are we checking a box? Yep, I was there on Sunday. See you next week and that's all I am. Because that's not church. So I I think it's given to us. We look at ourselves and say, okay, are are we standing firm? Are, Are we persevering? Or are we beginning to look like the world? And there is a temptation and what we see is that Jesus says that if you do not repent, I will come against you. And he has a sword. And we see in Revelation 1, a sword comes out of his mouth. And the crazy thing is is when we're in chapter 2, and I believe it's to Pergamum, he says, I will bring that sword against you. We, we automatically as good Christians think, oh, the sword's for other people. He says, I'll bring the sword against you. Jesus is intent on having a pure church. And so I think he's calling us, do we have things to repent of? Where are we at? Where are you at? And So I, as, we, as we get ready to, to, to leave today, don't leave. There, there's actually parts, spots, space, whatever that word is, space in your bulletin, just simply to write out things. I mean, you don't have to write it there, but we put that there just to kind of, what, what's sticking out to you today in God's word? What's he communicating to you? And I just urge you to pray. Is there anything that you've been compromising in? Is there any area that you're beginning to look much more like the world in? And the good news is God has has given us grace that he would offer us forgiveness. And so if you need to uh, repent today, do so as we pass out communion. Um, This is one of the reasons why we're we're gathering uh, tonight for prayer. We want to pray for us as a church. You'll see one of the line items that we have is pray for the church. We're going to pray that we, we grow strong in the Word. We're going to pray that we grow in love and unity, that we continue to, to have baptisms and that we, that we engage and we evangelize. We're going to pray for these very things because we don't want to compromise. And so I encourage you today, there is great hope in Jesus. He has placed His Spirit upon us. Let us trust in Him. Let's follow Him. And when there's areas of sin that come up, let us repent would experience his forgiveness and continue to follow him. I'm going to go ahead and call the men to come forward as I pray, and then we'll take communion this morning.